1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of the Next Best Picture podcast. I have with me today the likely soon-to-be Oscar-nominated set decorator of Blade Runner 29, Alessandra Carzuela. Alessandra, how are you?
2: I'm fine. I'm great, thank you.
1: All right. Well, thank you for coming on with us today. Now, uh, before we get into your incredible work on Blade Runner, I would like to ask you just a couple questions about your wonderful career as a whole. So could you tell us a little bit about what it is you do, and more specifically, how it is you became a set decorator?
2: Well, I started um, working pretty early when I was 18 in Venice during my Academia of Belle Arti courses and i've been you know taking into the movie the industry business uh, from there and uh, kind of starting from from the very bottom up <laughs> i've been i've been doing i've been doing a lot of theater at the very beginning and then slowly i got into the uh, international uh, uh, pond and i've been so lucky to be working in many big projects from the beginning which uh, gave me the right scale of a kind of project, you know. So, yes, I've been very lucky.
1: Well, you've uh, you've certainly come to a wonderful project to start with and we're very glad you made your way there. Um, so, I guess one of the big stories in this film is that you, uh, you and production designer Dennis Gassner worked with cinematographer Roger Deakins on this previous film. I know Deakins largely avoided looking at the previous Blade Runner film for inspiration. Did you and Gassner do that as well? Did you kind of try to strike out in your own direction? Or uh, did you allow the previous film to influence you, the original Blade Runner? Oh, well, no, we we didn't try to avoid
2: the the original Blade Runner. Uh, it simply wasn't that necessary, you know, it was a reference that wasn't with us every day. Um when I came on board uh, Dennis and Roger and Denis, they had already you know several meetings about creating the new world. And yes, I've started a little bit later, but in the meantime I was following from the distance all this develop how you know ideas were developed. And I did my and I did the job on my side. I start looking all the possible design, all the possible moods, that could uh, fit into this word, which is which was just nearly, you know, uh, at the first uh, uh, stage of creation, and uh, simply all this pond of references came very useful by the time that we all grouped in Budapest and we got it done. Um, I have to say that the brutalist uh, word was a must from the very beginning, and and respectful you know the uh, blade the first Blade Runner we were not going into any Baroque vision and uh, we were trying to build our own world in consequence of what happened with the first Blade Runner.
1: So I guess uh, when you say there was a lot of uh, brutalist influence there did was that largely brought about by the fact that you shot in Hungary um, was this something where, I know Los Angeles' own environment, like the Bradbury building, provided a lot of ready-made environments for the first Blade Runner. Were there places in Hungary where basically you didn't have to do much work because this setup was already pretty much there?
2: Oh, no, 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 absolutely not. I mean, we, we built uh, largely, you know, you know, kind of all the sets but and we shot outside uh, on location a couple of times. But the advantage to be in Budapest was that there was a vibe going around when you were going home from, from the studio, when you w- were going to the studio every morning and uh, you, we were fully immersed you know, in this environment, it was brutal and was kind of uh, not graceful. Uh, there are many, many uh, locations in Budapest uh, that are, are, were really inspiring. And but pure Bud- Bud- Budapest, I know that Roger and um, Denis they were looking at the brutalism in London because they wanted to shoot there, and that mm. was kind of very good point of start inspiration for all of us. Also because we had to try to keep. Uh, uh,
1: minimal no i would say right yes you, you want it to be a minimalist look i guess kind of this dark bleak future
2: yes exactly but we had to ground it It you all. Know, uh we had to create you know good roots that's why i'm i keep saying that they looking at the design uh from the 30s on has been of great help in reality if you look at the movie there are several um unique des- i mean uh historical design pieces but you don't quite notice them because they are very well hidden in in the sets so to me this was the the key using um, you know a sign an object a chair a table without showing off you know the source the design or you know the impact that
1: uh, could disturb our minimalist uh, uh, story now, could you tell me where some of those moments are, those things we didn't notice?
2: Yes, I was quite pleased. Uh, in, you know, at the, in the very beginning, in the first part, Kay goes to visit um, in a retired home. And that was one of the, uni- of the rare moments where we've been shooting on location and in a very nice and sweet historical building. And I, and I was really, really, you know, looking for something really good to uh, dress the set that was, you know, a kind of retire home, but still, you know, you couldn't go for normal furniture. And so all of the sudden, with Dennis, we've been looking at the Bauhaus furniture, which actually we bought for nuts in Slovakia. And that was the key for the look of the place, because the little tubular chromium uh, um, uh, frame of the armchairs, there were just enough bleak and cold in that very historical place. And I did see this on the big screen, and I was very pleased. You know, to me, the, the, I mean, it was kind of the key that I've been uh, pursuing the all you know, eight months, along with, of building, a lot of designing, a lot of uh, making up furniture, which we had.
1: We're talking about little details. Um, tell me about some of the other spaces. You know, the retirement home sounds like something you put a lot of thought into, but um, obviously Kay's home oh. is a place that there's a lot of details in. So tell me some of the things you hid there that audiences might not have noticed.
2: Well, uh, funny, funny enough, uh, Kay's apartment is the only specific place where there is a homage to the first Blade Runner. If you look in the kitchen, it's it's all there. Um, We made the kitchen very small. We've been working a lot in general in that that place. But the thing that uh, we wanted to to show was that the the kitchen was kind of a, um, you know, sailing boat kitchen was a uh, you know a, a spaceship uh, kitchen and it's really lovely we manufactured all we we made it in real uh, stainless steel and we mounted all the pieces totally functionally and uh, Roger did his best work with lighting and um, so that that to me was the you know, is the, is the best part of the apartment.
1: Now, Deacon, you mentioned Roger Deacons. His work in here is obviously stunning. I know a lot of people uh, want to see him win an Oscar for this. Can you tell me a little bit more about working with Roger, you know, with his his very distinct colors and some of the very complex lighting rigs he set up in general?
2: Oh, yes. We've been working very close. I mean, I met Roger already um in the past, because I was uh, um, I was part of the team of the uh, uh, Skyfall and Quantum of Solas, but in this case, we had to work so close um, that well, basically we projected and um, we uh, made all the I mean half of the lighting which you see on on screen, and it's been a, a long journey because everything has to combine together. Like the style of the light, the type of lighting, and the result of it, uh, using special um, fluorescence LEDs tubes, that was a drama to providing time and all of that. But it's been really, really a terrible, a terrible uh, you know um, achievement for all of us. And you can see on the screen all this.
1: Oh, his work in there.
2: It's incredible. It was kind of a second job on top of the set decoration. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, but no, but in a very good way, you know, in a very, very good way, because that's the reason why everything Evident is evident that has come together on the screen Because all all the department we've been working together confront and we have confrontation. We have discussions we um, there is no one drawing which hasn't been submitted and discussed by, you know, Danny, uh, by Den- Danny, by Roger, by the, the visual effects team. It's, it was an, an hard work from this point of view, but uh, the result is amazing. And I really, really am I'm so impressed about the producers. Uh, they allowed us to do all of that. Because, of course, this costs money.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: Time and, you know, all everything costs money. And I've been really impressed that they've been supporting us
1: until the last day. So, uh, not related to Blade Runner, but because you mentioned working with Roger on Skyfall, I have wondered for five years, how on earth did you guys set up that scene uh, in the Shanghai neon sign fight? Do you know what I'm talking about back in Skyfall? Yeah,
2: I know, I know,
1: exactly.
2: Well, that's a strange story because we were supposed to, well, you know, with Dennis Gassner and Anna Pinnock, I've been kind of, I was the outpost person. So for for, for a Skyfall, we were supposed to shoot in Shanghai in the real casino, which collapsed a couple of months before shooting. So they totally changed idea. And so we built everything in London and I've been just simply sending containers and containers of materials to get the build done correctly and uh, but then i was sent to turkey and i wasn't part of that shooting
1: oh okay
2: <laughs> but that was really fun in turkey even more fun I, I think you know all the all the train sequence oh yeah how complicated it was to only to secure the all the all the train track for kilometers oh, by God. By kids running around and going and during all the rehearsal, I've been really, really an enormous work and an enormous effort. Yeah. Oh, it must have been
1: so stressful. I can't imagine. Yeah. So uh, speaking of places you have to secure, um, I guess, big crowded spaces, tell me a little bit about the Vegas Hotel and what you put into because that's a very striking set in Blade Runner.
2: Uh, it, it was a huge space. We, we shot in the MTV uh, building, uh, who was totally empty, three stores.
1: It was the MTV building, you said? Yes. Oh, MTV okay, building. okay. Vision,
2: the old major te- television building.
1: Oh, that's so cool.
2: It was totally abandoned. And that location leads us then to the to the set build on the stage that was the um, penthouse which I had a lot of time fun in doing it. You know, really, really a lot of fun. It was 200 square meters, and uh, I remember making some decision, like having you know original American furniture fly flew over, because uh, it wouldn't been impossible to get the same scale of uh, sofas in Europe in any way. And we really wanted to, to make it kind of American uh, look. And I think that we did.
1: I mean, honestly, I didn't know until after I was looking at credits on the film that you guys had shot this so much in Europe. So you guys masked very well the fact that this was... Not, I mean, obviously, Vegas is not a nuclear wasteland, so it couldn't have been Vegas, but it certainly looked like it. What about those statues outside? The, uh, you know, the, the kissing female statues
2: Oh, oh, oh! Well, that's our magic uh, supervising art, dir- art director Rod that uh, um, has been following and the the making of them. It's all real, you know. We built enormous, gigantic statues, and we've been shooting in an enormous stage, like it was a, a real desert. We really, really, again, minimum uh, CGI effects needed, and. Um, so that was a, a really, really challenging set. And again, a, a gigantic set uh, that, you know, allow us to not to use so much green screen and the normal tricks.
1: Well, I was going to ask. So I know they uh, they were very adamant about the fact that there were essentially no green screens in used in making this film. So how did you guys pull off some of those massive spaces in cityscapes?
2: Well, I mean... Uh, Yes, we built very large sets, but also, and this was such a fun thing because it's 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 a technique that you know is from the past that we did miniature, like in front of a case apartment windows, we built a façade with one third of little apartment Hong Kong style, and we dress it with one third furniture and uh, you know and everything was miniaturized. But this thing made the, the whole environment so real, and we did the same in the rooftops, which are actually, my, which is actually my favorite set. And uh, we we built um, miniature as a background, and the whole thing worked so well, um, because it was real.
1: So all the, so it's it's very Star Wars, I guess. All those those overheads, you know, of the cities and stuff, all miniatures. That's so neat. Um, okay, so another thing I'm curious about is how you guys wove in product placement. Uh, because obviously, you know, every time you go outside, you mention the rooftops, we see flashing Sony logos and, uh, y- you know, so tell me a little bit in Coke, tell me a little bit about how product placement impacts this world and how you incorporated it.
2: Well, I mean, it wasn't, uh, I think it was more like the other way around, I know that Denny wanted to keep some of the big uh, advertised billboards and signs from the previous Blade Runner, and that simply happened, but we had no pressure whatsoever from product placement or, you know, we wanted those advertised to be on set because they were a kind of a link with the previous Blade Runner. Right. So they were simply a piece of furniture, <laughs> not an
1: intrusive moment in your dressing. No. So you, you mentioned that the rooftop was your favorite, though. Uh, what made? I mean, the rooftop is very striking, but what made the rooftop your favorite to decorate? Uh,
2: well, first of all, it's it was the uh, kind of brutal look uh, um, at the maximum stage, kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. much. Oh, than the Wallace. Wallace was brutal, but uh, kind of ornate uh, in colors and settings and lighting. Uh, the rooftops, it was, I think it was just fantastic for the lighting. We, we choose, with Roger, we choose enormous industrial um, uh, fluorescence that we put vertical all along the building. And that was really, really cool. Plus the colors, you know, blue, red green, and all this, uh, you know, um, setting of advertising, the little miniature, and it was raining on set, it was fog on set, in, 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 on the stage, so it was really magic, you know, we were really on top of the world.
1: Those are such haunting shots, too. That's such a beautiful scene where he has his digital girlfriend up there and then he freezes her or she freezes in the rain. So you did a absolutely marvelous job setting those up and making that environment haunting. Um, I guess the the next big space, since you kind of mentioned it, is Wallace's. I mean, you said it's brutalist, but also ornate. Tell me a little bit about the inspirations for Wallace's headquarters.
2: Well, for Wallace, we had a strange uh, uh, process. Well, not strange, a different process. Um, We kind of took away uh, suggestions and furniture um, because it was, at the beginning, the idea was to have a much more elaborate space. uh, More, for instance, more armchairs, more sculptures, more... High tables different things and then through through the, the days working all together with roger that wanted a, a special atmosphere there with Denise that wasn't sure what a you know a more or you know more organized space would that look and me that i wasn't really keen on making a, a meeting room out of the set so day by day we kind of lose elements and that was the right key to give wallace a word i think that only two little statues of samurai yeah yes which belong from a local artist which we've been looking a lot of local artists to uh, were kept on the set and a wonderful low table by willy rizzo stayed but it was just the right move because those were kind of difficult sets. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to dress with nothing, you know, it's easier to dress with a bulk of stuff.
1: Anyway. Well the the emptiness was palpable there. I mean that's it, it did make me feel lonely just to be there. Um okay, so another one I'm curious about is I noticed that a lot of the computers and computer monitors were very big, blocky. They felt like something you would have had in the early 2000s or the late 1990s instead of what you usually see in sci fi, which is very tiny, sleek monitors. How did y'all choose to go for kind of the vintage computer look?
2: Well, it was necessary to, to have, you know, to mark a contrast with rich and poor. Of course, love office. She has a very sleek and modern small uh, screen, which is we, was integrated in the very long table, which we don't see that much. And uh, comparing with the doctor badge, uh, you know, office with all the little monitors and you know, seventies little TVs were light up. Because, you know, the poor had no possibility to, uh, to have more expensive and elaborate technology after um, the big blow in 2022. Right. Yes. So that was a kind of sign of uh, kind of social diversity, you know, different.
1: Um, I, I guess I didn't originally plan to ask about this, but we're talking about social diversity. Uh, One of the most striking sets in the film is the orphanage in San Diego. Uh, Tell me a little bit about designing that.
2: Oh, well, you know, as soon as my team started in Budapest, the next day we started to build those tables, and because um, we made them, and it was there were two hundred and forty. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, 240. We bought, I mean, tons and tons and tons and tons of metal bits. And we've been sizing them all. The, we gave them the all a regular size um, just to avoid the Dickens kind of atmosphere. We made them very regular in, mm-hmm. in line. And we give them all those um, electronics material to work with. So it's been one of those, you know, Gigantic sets that I couldn't have done with, with, without my team, like Trash Mesa. You know, trash, trash Mesa. I don't know if it's clear when you when you look at the screen, mm-hmm. but uh, it's a kind of three-pitchel, uh, three-football-pitch crater, empty, and we simply dress with again with metal and with fake metal. We have, you know, I mean, two gigantic Arctic from Italy with a special materials cut mm. so that all the action stand action could happen without harm anyone. But that was an enormous job, enormous, enormous job. And no green screen.
1: There was no, oh my God, <laughs> that's yeah. so insane. Those sets were so cavernous.
2: Yeah, yeah, and when they you, they scrambled down from, down from that part of the hill, mm-hmm. That's all polyfrain, uh, polystrain materials uh, that we bought. They were all blue because they only come in blue. And we've been painting them for two weeks in the open air because we had so much material that we couldn't even find a stage to paint them. Oh my God. Of course, the weather was, it was already October, so you know everything was wet and nothing was drying up. So it was a bit of a, bit of a challenge, but it, it, it really looked great. It really grew, looked great, you know.
1: Oh, it looked incredible.
2: My team did an incredible job, and uh, I would have not you know, done it without them anyway.
1: So, you know, you, that's something where you put a lot of effort into building massive scales of something that at least on a single viewing, you know, might at first go unnoticed. Um, what are some other areas, what some... Details that you put a lot of effort into that didn't make it onto screen or that are not immediately obvious, you know. Um, you no, know, just little Easter eggs, anything in there.
2: Oh well, I mean, I have no idea how much uh, um, it can be re- revealed in the making of, uh, you know, um, of the movie. But for instance, case uh, environment, all his big building. It was a six stories mm-hmm. um, staircase, totally dressed, which of course got lost <laughs> during during the I mean it's not it's not hasn't come up. Yeah. But uh, That was a really really big big set too and uh, i think that we we do get a bit of the hallway with the cages with the man with men living in cages
1: yes right before he goes into his room yes
2: yeah exactly and that was really fun in doing it because we've been looking in into the hong kong um, um little um cage houses and we kind of revisited that concept it was really good but and another giant, gigantic set which is not coming up but it will probably in the videos in the dvds and all that i think
1: that's so cool i'm, I'm sorry we didn't get to see that although if the previous blade, blade runner is any indication we'll see three or four more versions of this one so a question just about you and your history with films i noticed that you uh you is it a coincidence that you have a number of faith-based films you worked on? Ben Hur, Risen, the Nativity Story. Oh yes, I think so. <laughs> oh okay, okay. Well, so what, what, even
2: yeah. even be also be because those three movies are quite different stories altogether. You know, like Ben Hur was a story, Risen, which uh, I, I I really loved a lot working with, uh, Kevin Reynolds, um, was a different story again. And the nativity story was a kind of Christmas tale thing. So, no, I think it's just a coincidence.
1: Would you say that Blade Runner is in any way a faith-based film?
2: It's a very romantic film
1: <clears throat> to me. Yeah.
2: I always uh, um, felt the case. He's a really romantic hero. More than faithful, is rom- ro- romantic, yes.
1: He, well, he's also, he's Ryan Gosling, so by the nature of being Ryan Gosling alone, I guess he's very romantic. Um, what about your interaction with Renée April, or April, I'm hopefully not butchering her name too much, the costume designer on the film? How did you collaborate with her?
2: Oh, like, like we did with the, all the other departments. Uh, plus, uh, keep on warning each other about colours about, um, for instance, for uh, the BB's bar, our interaction was very important because, uh, you know, the, the sets was designed in a, in a kind of way that had to um, give the, the right place to, the, to their characters and um, the colors were important there. And they kind of um, sorry, I've lost it.
1: <laughs> no words. No, I mean, the, the colors being important is, I, I'm sure that was something, both with Deacons' heavy blues and oranges, and also with the uh, you know the mini colorful jackets with the prostitutes and stuff. There was quite a bit of collaboration that had to go on there. Uh, but also, for instance, in Love's office, it was fundamental that
2: because I I wanted to go with white and she wanted to go with white. And normally you don't do the you you don't match the um, armchairs with the you know, with the outfit. Right. But in that we decided that was the only way to do it. Like everything white. And in fact there is that shot that she's having her nail done. Which is simply spectacular, you know. Oh yeah. It's a case where, with where, where um, you know, a design icons, uh, get you know kind of hidden, and not too exposed because that was a uh, original Paul Pauline armchairs and all that, but you you hardly notice that, and I'm so pleased about it, you
1: know. In, in that scene, it's so wonderful. It tells so much about her character too. It's a perfect way to get to know her. Um. Before I ask you a, a few specific Oscar questions, is there anything else you would like people to know about your work in Blade Runner? Because obviously you were integral in making this vibrant world come to life, things you're particularly proud of or things you think people will find particularly fascinating.
2: Well, I'm, I'm very proud of our uh, making of things. I'm very proud of how we uh, all together worked the technology, because that was a very difficult task involving many departments. We've been working with the with the local team of uh, prop maker, and it took a while for for us to get in sync with the requirements. But at the end, I think that the job is just fantastic. Like the the bone scanner at the very beginning, I think it's a wonderful piece of uh, prop
1: that we made and um the the ships as well i thought the ships were fascinating yes they are and then also that uh the one kind of traditional house uh the very beginning where um dave batista lives i thought that was wonderful both that and i know this was more april's work but his uh his bio suit he wore i thought were too fascinating
2: it was great and well but the, you know even the nursery um, tent was incredible we had we we've been using um those sacks which are coming from an italian uh producer and who made uh, algae um, spirulina algae for real and they use more or less the same system like filtering water in uh, and and growing up algae, it's kind of the same thing that Dave but student was doing, like he was growing uh, worms, and I found it really great because we used their sacks, they system, and uh, and that was really fun.
1: Yes, it was. Really- Were there any um, ideas you had for the set that? Made their way into the film and directly impacted the plot. Was there anything that wasn't in the script that just a prop or a uh, an object you guys put on screen that Denis was like, "Ooh, we need to find a way to incorporate this."
2: Well, I remember that one day Denis came to my office saying, "Oh, oh, we have few days, but we need to work on media station." So we it was a, th- a Thursday, I think. So we went down to our warehouse and because we have a lot of um, electronic and computer parts and everything uh, still left behind from from the dish, we've been assembling a couple of media stations in a couple of days with everybody contributing and all that. And, uh, And then, of course, you can see this media station in every single set. They, they, they were not planned, they were not even designed, but made on the spot, on the hot spot, with Dennis supervising, my boys building it. And you can see this media station everywhere, and that's a, really a pleasure. And it doesn't change the plot, but he, you, we get a,
1: a nice, great connection with the first play runner. The fact that it's present everywhere is so cool as well. Now, the last question I wanted to ask you, since this is an awards podcast and an awards website, um, among films you've seen this year, and I know you're very, very busy, um, are there any that, aside from Blade Runner, which I hope and think will get nominated for Best Production Design, are there any other films that particularly stood out for you for their set decoration and production design?
2: Well, I had the chance to uh, to, to see... The darkest, darkest water.
1: Oh, uh, the darkest hour with Gary Oldman. Exactly.
2: Oh, yeah. And I think it's it's fantastic. I think it's uh it's really, it will be my favorite.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, wow.
2: I, uh, yeah.
1: Other so, than Blade Runner, I assume. <laughs>
2: well, I don't know. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not American, and it's difficult for me to read things in that perspective. Uh, it, if we get nominating, okay, it's good fun. But uh, I'm kind of, you know, um, suspicious about all that.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Too much
2: drums. Mm. So let's see, let's see, let's see. It's been a great journey for me. It's been wonderful working with Dennis. It's been, you know, one of the rare cases where you do all the creative process correctly. and And it did work, so... That's what counts in this moment.
1: Well, it came, the final product was just visually stunning. Uh, y- now that you've created one lasting masterpiece here of visuals, what's next for you? What projects do you have lined up now?
2: Well, um, I'm still waiting to see if um, Edgardo Motara will finally get shaped. And because we started last year, as soon as I got back from.
1: Oh, for Spielberg?
2: Yeah. Uh, I've been involved in the project. We've been prepping a couple of months, and then the project—I mean—and the, then the project folded. Uh, folded. But um, I know that they won they, they still want to do it, and there is a rumor that it's going to get done next year. So let's see it.
1: He, he's already finished, hasn't he? Ready Player One's production too, and he—he's uh, oh, finished the post. He
2: finished last year. And then I think that and we were just about to start uh, uh, the, the um, pre-production in mid-February this, this year, that he decided to do the other project, which is more
1: connected with the
2: Trumps, Trump uh, um, you know, problems and things. I right, think.
1: right. Well, I hope that one happens. That would have Mark Rylance coming back too, right? The kidnapping of Edgar Mortada?
2: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And I understand you're also working on a Danny Boyle project?
2: Yeah, which is finished now, and it's going to be aired on February, I think, very, very, very soon.
1: Are there any other big projects that you have in the pipeline, or do you finally get a break? Uh,
2: well, I'm trying to get a break as soon as I can, because, yes, there is something else cooking.
1: Let's see what's happening. Ooh, OK. Well, I can't wait to find out what that is, even if you can't tell us. So, Alessandra, uh, if you, unless you have any other comments to tell our listeners about your work on Blade Runner, that's pretty much all I have for you today. Thank you so much for coming on. Do you have any last-minute Blade Runner thoughts?
2: No, thank you very much. Thank you very much for calling me, and thank you very much for the conversation.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, to our listeners, this has been the Next Best Picture podcast. Uh, interview with Alessandra Kerstola. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mavericks Movies, and you can find more about our podcast on site at Insight at www.nextbestpicture.com. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to go see Blade Runner wallets and theaters and give a shout-out to this woman's incredible sex life.